The following audio is from Shady Grove Presbyterian Church in Rockville, Maryland. Our mission is to follow Jesus Christ and labor for his kingdom both in our area and around the world. For more information about Shady Grove Presbyterian Church, please follow our Facebook page and visit shadygrovepca.org. The gap is growing in the story of the life of Jesus and the expectations that the scribes and the Pharisees, you're starting to see attention grow. And I'm going to read this very familiar passage of Jesus calling Levi. But I just want to set it in its context that Mark uh, 2, <clears throat> verse, really from beginning of uh, chapter 2 through 3, chapter 3, verse 6 is all one section. And 3.6 ends with, they went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him, how to kill him. So the gap is going to go pretty, pretty fast, that they're ready to kill him. And this is one of the reasons why in this text. Because with Jesus, you either got to get rid of your old paradigm, your old grid, your old box of where you want to put Jesus into. He doesn't fit it. So either you get rid of Jesus or you get rid of the box. Because new wineskin and new wine doesn't fit with old wine and old wineskins. And so Jesus has something for each of us here today to show us how great he is and how small our, our box is and how he comes to blow it up. So listen to what he says here in Mark uh, chapter 2, uh, beginning at verse 13. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And he reclined at table in his house. Many, and as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and uh, people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskin. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Let me pray again for us. Lord, as we consider again your word, I pray it's your word that's preached and not mine. And that, Lord, we would give attention to you, and we'd see where we fit into this story. We pray that you would speak now, Holy Spirit, to your church and that we'd understand what the Spirit is saying to the church and that we would bear good fruit as we apply these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Well, there's a lot here, so let's just jump in. We've got four things I want us to consider this morning. First of all, is just the call itself, verse 13 and 14. This is a radical call. Um, and then the company. We've got bad company in verse 15. And then you have the complaints. And they're, they're in the form of, you know, so often in the Gospels, it, particularly in Mark, you have all of these questions, right? There's over 107 questions in the Gospel of Mark. It's worth just looking specifically at the questions because you've got a bunch in this text where the complaints are in the form of questions. But Jesus will often give questions in return. And so he gives computations. That's just a fancy C word for refuting or rebuttals. Um, and that's verses uh, 17 and then 19 to 22. But it's the first question that Jesus asked in the gospel. And the first question that he asked is actually in 2.19. And it's, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? First question that Jesus is going to ask. And it's really a profound one. We'll come back to that. So those, that's where we're going. So let's consider first the call. I mean, the call is Jesus is in Capernaum and he um, you know, he's with his disciples. He's called for them already. He's called these fishermen. And if you've seen The Chosen, the, the, the series that's, uh, I guess you download the app that's on YouTube, some of them. But if you watch some of those, there's kind of this fanciful uh, storytelling of, of, of Matthew. And then Matthew actually knows uh, these fishermen. And, and that's probably true because these fishermen would have been paying taxes to the tax farmer. And so what happened was Rome, with some of their particular taxes, they would farm it out. Meaning, it's a business. And who is willing to pay the amount, the biggest bid for a year to farm in this region? <clears throat> and there were certain regions where they would farm. <clears throat> and the Romans figured, well, we'll let the Jews do it. And if they can come up with the money, you would actually have to bid on it and pay a year in advance. So let's just say that it's a big business. You come together as uh, a group of investors, and there was a, uh, obviously a chief tax collector like Zacchaeus. He, he, he was seriously wealthy, but these investors, like Levi, came together with their other business partners, and they would produce a sum of money and say, all right, we're going to put up a million bucks. And, and if Rome accepted that bid, that they'd have to pay it up front, and then they would have to go that whole year, and whatever they got over a million, I'm just giving you, you know, if they got, they say our goal is going to be two million, and we get a, a million in our pockets. So that's what we call tax farming. And so Levi was a Jew, but he's a tax farmer. He is now a collaborator with the Romans. This is not good, because the Romans... Who are you going to appeal to as the Jews if you don't like that, that they're taxing every wheel on my cart and they're exorbitantly taxing every fish that I catch and they're coming up with preposterous things and requiring unbelievable amounts through greed and extortion and whatever means possible. Who are you going to appeal to as the Jew? The Romans? <laughs> you know, so these guys were collaborators, but it gets worse. See, these tax farmers would have, um, they were excluded from society. They were, they were excluded from the synagogue, excluded from the temple, 
right off the bat, you can't come. You are not, because you're contaminated. You're not allowed to spend time with Gentiles, and obviously you've collaborated with Gentiles, and therefore, through double separation, we can't have contact with you. And so these tax farmers were persona non grata. You didn't, you know, they might have lots of fish and lots of their own little friends around them and lots of things to tax, but they didn't have any friends that would have been true Jews because you didn't spend time with them. And so, obviously, you know, when you think of Jesus' parable to the Pharisee and the tax collector, and it says, you know, these Pharisees, he's like, thank you that, you know, I am not like this tax collector over here. I fast twice a week, and I tithe on all that I get. Well, how was a tax farmer going to tithe? It was impossible, because... You can't go to the synagogue, and you can't go to the synagogue, and you can't put your hand out to anybody who would take the tithe because then they too would be a sinner like you. So it was impossible to tithe, so you were very elevated that I tithe on all I get. But this tax collector, he doesn't even tithe. He's the low of the low. So what would that be like today in our culture? You know? It's like meeting somebody at church and you ask them what they do and they say, well, I, I do marketing for a healthcare company. Oh, really? What healthcare company? Well, I'm in women's healthcare. Well, tell me more, tell me more. Well, well, I do marketing for Planned Parenthood. What would you say if that person was sitting next to you? What are you doing here? <laughs> or tell me more about that. How about a person who says, well, I own three adult superstores. I run the local pot dispensary for helping people. I'm a liquor store owner. I work for the mafia. <laughs> I'm a pimp. I mean, there's some really bad ones that you could fall into, right? I mean, this was the low of the low in, in Jesus' day. This would be even worse than the leper. Because at least the leper came to Jesus, but Jesus actually goes to this guy before he's ever repented, shown any preconditions of repentance, the same thing he did with Zacchaeus, today I must come to your house, like, he hasn't shown any repentance. And Jesus goes, and he just says to him, and you can imagine what the disciples are thinking, like, Jesus, no, what are you doing? Jesus goes to Levi and says, follow me. That's the imperative. Follow me. And he rose and followed him. Now you think about this, what that would have meant for Levi. This was big business. We don't know where this is in the season, but if you think it was something for the disciples to leave Zebedee Fishing Enterprises to follow Jesus because of all they were leaving behind, imagine you're a big investor and you've already ponied up for the year and you're a mill in the hole and now you just left everything to follow Jesus. You have to have money to make money. So you're never going to be able to go back to this because you already left what you had. You're done. Cashed in your chips and you're following Jesus. He left everything. It was a much bigger sacrifice for Levi to follow Jesus than it would have been for the fishermen. And so he leaves all the piles of money. He leaves all that behind. And he follows Jesus. And so... That's the call. It's a radical call because Jesus goes to somebody. I mean, if you think about when you go to the farmer's market 
and you pick out the apples that you're going to put in your, in your little, you know, uh, bag to take home with you, which apples are you going to pick? It's pretty simple, isn't it? I mean, you, you pick up one, you see a bad spot, that one goes back, you know, you look around, that one's kind of soft. And Jesus picked the rotten apple. He picked like the worst apple. Are you kidding me? L- Levi? Like this guy is a loser, capital L, like you just stay away from him. You pick the best apples for your bag. And Jesus just doesn't do that. That's why it brings hope to all of us. Does it not? I mean, this is just amazing. Jesus comes, he's for the depressed. He's for the one that recently got divorced. The one who has bipolar. The one struggling with same-sex attraction. The one that continues to battle with an addiction. The young couple that's living together and isn't married. You see, Jesus doesn't just pick the people that we would choose. He doesn't go after, okay, these, these, are, these are the good people. They come from the good neighborhoods. They come from good schools. They're uber-educated. They listen to the same music we do. They're culturally conservative. They go to the, the right private school or the good public schools. They vote the way we do. They're passionate about the same issues we are. Jesus goes after Levi. Someone that's clearly what we would say is messed up. Kevin DeYoung told a story of just trying to describe this as to imagine your Christmas caroling. And at the time he was ministering right, on the, right near a college campus. And he's saying, you know, you've got this big fraternity house, Greek life on campus. And this particular house is just infamous for partying. All these people are underage drinking, smoking pot, sleeping around. But they're going to go Christmas caroling. And so they decide, we don't really want to go to that house. But it is Christmas, so why don't we just, why don't we just go knock on the door to that house? Like imagine in your neighborhood, you decide, we're going to go Christmas caroling, but that house, that's the rental house. You know, the kid... The, the, Kids drive way too fast up and down the street. Their mufflers are way too big and way too loud. And children ride up and down with mini bikes with no helmets on. I mean, if, you know, we don't, we don't want to go to that house. You know, we don't, that house is kind of scary. The police have been there before. And who knows how many people live there. Like, are we really want to go knock on that house? Well, they decide they're going to go knock on the house. So they ring the doorbell and they're hoping nobody would come. But the door opens and it's Jesus at the door. Like, in you know, a fictional story, but you want to say to Jesus, what are you doing here? Don't you know who, don't you know what this house is, this frat house? Don't you know what's going on here? You're there, Jesus? Or imagine you knocked on the door and one of the prominent elders of the church answers it. And you want to say, Larry, what, what are you doing with these people? They, they have a reputation. But you see, Jesus is a friend of sinners. Let me ask you this. Do you think the church, when you think of the church, and you think of the need of the church, it's kind of a trick question, but one to wrestle with in your life groups, 
do you think the church needs to do a better job of building walls or building bridges? Which do you think the church needs? Because the answer is both. You need, there's times where you, you, know, you see what's out there, it's coming in here, and they're bringing it here, and you're starting to accept it, and you're starting to accommodate that. And you got people saying, you know, we need bigger walls. We need to, we need to protect our kids from the culture. And look at what they're teaching. Have you, have you watched the TV lately? Have you seen the news? Have you watched these demonstrations? You know, so there's people that feel like we need, we need to build walls. We need to have better statements of theology to define these things better. But there are others that feel like we need better bridges. Like, are we going to these people? Do we reach out to them? Do we care about them? And there's passages where Jesus does build walls in the Gospels. I mean, he comes turning over tables and kicking people out even of the temple. But other places where he's building bridges. This is an amazing text where Jesus is building bridges. The reality is, it's all right here in our church. Are we not the people in the toll booths of our sin? Aren't we the people that want to get all we can for ourselves? Even sometimes at the expense of others? Don't we sometimes assume the worst about people? Have irrational fears, insecurities? Big marriage stuff, sexual issues, addictions, arrogant pride, lustful thoughts, fits of anger, binging habits. It's, it's all in the building. We are the, the Levi's, okay? So it's easy to just put up our noses and say, man, I just can't believe it. Rather than saying, praise God, he, he comes to Levi's like me. Praise God. Well, that's the call. And so the company that he keeps is also pretty shocking in the text, is that the Pharisees are seeing, wait a minute, the shock of this text is that Jesus is with these people and there's no indication of their repentance. This is bad company and now Jesus has spent time with them and according to Pharisaic tradition, if you do that, you're not supposed to spend time with a Gentile. You're not supposed to eat with a Gentile. You're not supposed to dine with them. And they fasted twice a week. You remember the the parable, right? The Pharisee and the tax collector. I fast twice a week. Literally, they fasted on Monday and Thursday from the sun up to sundown, fast, and they, and they prayed at three different hours of the day. And that was their righteousness. That made them better than tax collectors and sinners. And so here's Jesus not fitting their grid. He's contaminating himself by being with these people. Well, so the shock of the text is that Jesus um, is spending time with these sinners before there's any signs of repentance from them. Matter of fact, we're told that there's lots of them in verse 15. It says many who are around and they're, they're reclining with Jesus and Jesus is bringing his disciples and, and they're just they're reclining at table. I mean, that is some serious table fellowship going on. What's going on here? And so that leads to the complaints. And the complaints are Jesus has got to get with the program because Jesus obviously is doing something that's wrong here. He's spending time with tax collectors and sinners. And please keep in mind when I say, talk about this text, like 
This is not a text that says, okay, missionary dating is a good thing. Go spend time with an unbelieving girl or guy because that's what Jesus would do. Go get high with your friends because that was what Jesus would do. Or go, go get drunk. Go to the, you know, the topless bar with the people at work because we're being what Jesus does. That, that's not what the text is saying, okay? Jesus accepts people, but he's on a mission to transform them. And so for us, I think one of the questions I want to wrestle with in our life groups is, do we struggle more with accepting love or transforming love? You need both. And if you listen to your marriage partner, one of you is lobbying one and one's lobbying the other. Just start listening. Because this is what Dan Doriani says at Covenant Theological Seminary, who wrote a book on Matthew's commentary. He says, he has this, talks about these two halves of accepting love, transforming love. He says, in its, pr- in its proper form... Transforming love is truly love. It says, because I love you, I want you to be the best version of yourself. But transforming love always needs accepting love to be healthy. Transforming love by itself becomes tyrannical. It says, you must change. Transforming love by itself is proud. I want to remake you so you can conform to my image of excellence. Without accepting love, transforming love will always be dissatisfied. In the end, it rejects its object unless it changes. By itself, it's conditional love. If transforming love constantly demands improvement and never accepts, it ceases to be love at all. Jesus brings accepting love and transforming love into perfect partnership. Jesus came to Matthew, accepted him as he was, He loved his sinful friends as they were, yet Jesus wanted to transform them. So he called Matthew before he cleaned up his life. He called Matthew while he was still a tax collector. But after Jesus called him, Matthew gave up his old life and he changed. So it is with Jesus. He loves sinners as we are, but he never leaves us where we are. In marriage and parenting, we need both kinds of love. Accepting love without transforming love slides into indulgence and finally neglect. It doesn't care enough about the potential of the beloved, what the beloved can't be. But transforming love without accepting love badgers and finally rejects. So you need both. And Jesus is the perfect embodiment of accepting love and transforming love. Jesus is both. Which do you naturally incline to? Which do you think the church should be more inclined to? Realizing when the church, if you were to ask people about the church and say, do you think the church struggles more with accepting love or transforming love? Like, which do you think we need to be putting our attention on? Jesus clearly rattled the cage of the Pharisees. They don't like this. They're all about transforming love, but their transforming love is their little box, their grid of of what these expectations are, that it's going to be fasting twice a week. And Jesus just says something totally radical. Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? I mean, has anybody ever been to a wedding where the the wedding party said, "Uh, we're going to fast and we want everybody to fast at our reception, because it will be good for us, it'll be good for you, it'll be really good for the parents, and this will be a great thing. How many of you have ever fasted at a wedding feast? Anybody? Nobody. So, 
In this culture, the, the idea of the bridegroom with the wedding guest is referring to the wedding party. How long would that last? A week. A week of feasting. <clears throat> and during that week of feasting, <clears throat> the rabbi said, all the fasting, you, you don't have to fast during that week. During that week, it is enjoy the food. The bride and, I mean, it's, the honeymoon was really different back then. I mean, today, you know, when you get done with your, your, your wedding ceremony and, and you have the reception, the bride and groom, they, they head off somewhere and they typically don't even tell anybody where they're going, right? Here, your honeymoon would be in the tent, right next to where everybody else was. Like, you were not far from each other because it was all part of the party and you're there. And everybody's enjoying the, the feast with you for a whole week of your honeymoon is with them. And Jesus just says, the first question in the Gospels is, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? Who's the bridegroom in the Bible? In the whole Old Testament, there's a whole sheet of verses in your bulletin, so you could see from Ezekiel 16 and Isaiah 62, it's not the Messiah, it's God. It's never predicted that the Messiah will be the bridegroom. It's, it's told the bridegroom is Yahweh. And the bridegroom is Israel. And here's Jesus with his first question of the gospel saying, I am Yahweh and the church is the bridegroom. It's a, it's a mic drop. It's a kaboom. It's powerful. And then he gives this reference to his death. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast in that day. Verse 20. You see, this isn't some like happens all the time. Now let's make a comparison. Have you ever been to a, a, a wedding where, where the bridegroom just died? Is taken away? It doesn't happen. Like that's, that's not normative. What Jesus is saying is the bridegroom will be taken away from them. In the midst of all this celebration. He's here now, but he's going to be taken away. It's a reference to Jesus is going to be crucified, and he already knows what his mission is. He's on his way. And so he's bringing in the kingdom, and he's saying the bridegroom is here. Yahweh has come. And when John the Baptist, who's the, the you know, the, uh, what do you Blanking on the word, the guy, that, the best man. He's the best man. He's right next to Jesus. And in John 3, the great text where he must become greater and I must become less, he says the bridegroom is here. And he's hearing the bridegroom's voice and he's saying he's rejoicing. And he's saying the joy is mine that he's here. He must become greater. I must become less. I mean, that's the job of the best man. He's not to draw attention to himself. Draw attention to, to the bride and the bridegroom. And so... Jesus is the lover of our souls. He's the one who loves us so much. His first reference to himself is that he's the bridegroom and he's arrived, Yahweh in the flesh. And he blows up all of our expectations. And so we, like Levi, are these people that say, this is the kingdom. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up then his joy he goes and sells all that he has and he buys the field or the kingdom's like a is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it and that's what happens to levi 
is he leaves all that's behind. And in his joy of finding Jesus, now he's experiencing the repent and turn again that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. He is experiencing these times of refreshing, and he can't help but invite all of his friends, you've got to come meet Jesus. It's like the woman leaving her water pot. It's like Bartimaeus leaving his cloak. They just get so excited, they forget things like cloaks and water pots and decorum. They invite all their friends to be with Jesus, and Jesus isn't ashamed to be with them, and Levi's not ashamed to be with Jesus. And we shouldn't be ashamed of being people to our church or to our small group. And if we are, then where's the accepting love? Something's missing. How's our joy doing? I mean, this whole thing is, is joy in Luke 15. And you remember the, the elder brother just couldn't rejoice. But joy has this tremendous leaking effect. Joy always oversteps its bounds. It spills over to others and people are attracted to it because it's so rare. And Levi's inviting these people, and they're all coming, and there's this great gathering, but the Pharisees don't like it. They don't like what they see. They see he's bringing in all the riffraff, and we forget that we're the riffraff. And so Jesus has to confute. He has to put things in its place. He has to remind us that the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking. It's of righteousness, joy, and peace, in the Holy Spirit. And we all have to die to our self-righteousness because it still is in us and we still have to keep dying to it. J.C. Ryle says, sin is, sin has killed its thousands, but self-righteousness has killed its tens of thousands. And I would say for us, that just as a warning, watch out for generational self-righteousness. Watch out for cultural self-righteousness. Let me illustrate. Generational self-righteousness. It can be very subtle, but very nuanced. Sometimes younger people can look down on older people. They look down at them because they think they're, they're so stuck in their ways. They're so traditionalist. And, and they want to say, okay, boomer. But then the older people find themselves looking at the younger people. And they say, well, when we were growing up, we showed respect. You know, we were growing up, we took our hats off, you know. When we grew up, we were quiet in church, you know, whatever, you know. And you tend to look down on thinking that you were so much better. And as a parent, the one thing you never want to say to your kid is, I, I can't believe you did that. I would have never conceived of that. What, what are you saying to your child? I am so much better than you. Phew, are you kidding? It's not true. So you don't want to say those things. And be careful as the tendencies to look down on the older or the younger. But we actually need each other in amazing ways. How about culturally? Culturally, this manifests itself in different cultural expressions of church. You hear people say, why are they so quiet during the service? I mean, everything is so liberal. There's no joy. The songs lack a pep in their step. And the preaching especially. It's like taboo if anybody says amen or preach it or uh-huh. Like, 
why are these people, you know, then you have the other people saying, why are these people so touchy-feely? Everybody hugs you, squeezes you, gets up in your grill and personal space, and there's all this dancing and singing and people clapping and swaying. It's, it's like more of a party scene than a worship service. Where's the decorum, the reverence, and the respect? I mean, I was at a church where, the last church where I came from, and somebody raised their hand and somebody tapped them on the shoulder and said, we don't do that here. Well, they didn't. They left. My friend was just here. He's growing his hair long. He wants to give it to locks of love. But he looks a little rough. And one of, somebody, one of my friends asked me, is he a Christian? I thought, man, that's, it's just like us, right? We, we tend to size people up. Like, like this famous fundamentalist pastor that went and met with C.S. Lewis in, in England. He came back and he reported that that man smokes and that man drinks. But I think C.S. Lewis is a Christian. You think? You guys, we all have these little holes that we're trying to just patch up. And Jesus just blows a box. He just blows it all up. This isn't Microsoft 7 or Microsoft 10 for you computer people. I mean, this is, you need a whole new operating system. This is a Linux system. This is completely different. Microsoft, not going to work. This patching up righteousness not going to work. This old system, not going to work. Jesus is bringing in new, new, new. You keep seeing a new wine, new wineskins, new garments. Everything is new, so you have to get rid of the old garment, the old paradigm, the old habits, the old traditions. They all have to be ch challenged in light of Jesus bringing in this new way of a new life, new heart. And Jesus is going to accept us. And this is what I want you to see at the table when we come to the table. Is this accepting love? It's accepting love. He has accepted you because he died for you. But is it transforming love? He doesn't just pardon you. He's changing you from glory to glory and sanctifying you. And you get the power and reminded of it right here at the table. You're getting the fullness of both. And so come feast. We need it. We need this. We need Jesus. Come to him. Let's pray. Lord, we're all filthy. We have so many ways that we judge other people and we fail to judge ourselves and our own pride. Help us to rejoice at seeing other churches grow, people being brought into the kingdom, particularly when they don't look like us. May we celebrate all the more. Lord God, we thank you that you reached Sinful people like us, give us compassion to be like Jesus, to show this love to others. Fill us, we pray, and meet us at your table. We ask in your name. Amen.